You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. With that said, um, so is our kind of precarious political situation and the kind of ailing body politic here in the U.S. offers little to be hopeful for. We stand sort of posed on the eve of the 100th anniversary of really one of the most significant events of the last century. So in the winter of 1917, Russia was an autocratic monarchy. So it was caught up in really one of the bloodiest wars of the century. By the month of October of that year, its cocoon had burst and had really transformed itself into the world's very first socialist state. So the nuances of this transformation, the scope and the importance of these events, have been treated by academics in the past. We have an entire section down in the basement that just sort of deals with this sort of thing. But it really took someone like China Mayville to bring it to life in ways that are accessible and meaningful to us today. And he's done really an amazing job of focusing on the very heart of this important moment. And in his signature style, as really a master storyteller, has created a really captivating and wonderful story. So, um, as many of you know, um, he's a multi-award winning author of many works of fiction. These, of course, include the very famous The City and the City, uh, also Embassy Town and this census taker. He's won the Hugo, the World Fantasy, and the Arthur C. Clarke Awards. His nonfiction includes the photo-illustrated essay, London's Overthrow, and between Equal Rights, a Marxist Theory of International Law. His writings have appeared in numerous publications, including New York Times, The Guardian, Conjunctions, and Granta. He's also the founding editor of the Quarterly Salvage. So the book tonight that we're celebrating is called October, The Story of the Russian Revolution. We're really happy to have representatives from Verso here with us tonight, the publisher of the book. We have Rosie and then Ann Rumberger. We're really happy. Are they up on the rafters? Yeah. Hi. So just delighted to have them with us as well. So, sir, welcome to City Lights. Um, thank you. Am I audible at the back? Yeah, great. Thank you so much um, for having me. It's uh, a a great honor and a big kick to be in this um, incredibly famous locale. And thank you all for coming. Um, One very, very minor point of correction. I'm one of the co-founders of Salvage. Um, The editor-in-chief, Rosie, is up there. Uh, And maybe we can talk about Salvage later if people want. So what what I'm going to do, in in some ways I'm going to be quite misleading because um, the bulk of the book is... Uh, uh, the way I would the way I would put this is that this is not uh, this is not a history for leftists. It's a history for anyone who's interested. However, it is a history by a leftist, um, and that clearly informs it. And the, there is a certain degree of it is a narrative history, but there's a certain degree of the the politics and the analysis is kind of obviously not shied away from and not disavowed. Um, the one section and the book works up to this explosive moment of October 1917 itself, the centenary uh, of which we are approaching. Um, um, But this is an event which um, is haunted by a ghost from the future, and the ghost is what happened then. Um, And that was a a complexity and a difficulty, because on the one hand, that was very much not 
the, the focus and the rubric of the book. It wasn't intended to be, um, but it would equally seem uh, craven and completely disingenuous and unpersuasive to avoid it. Uh, so you can't talk about, I don't think, you can't talk about Russia 1917 without talking about Russia 1918 and Russia 1924, 28, 56, 89, etc. So in the, in the last chapter of the book, in the epilogue, a short epilogue, there is, uh, I think, a kind of necessarily <clears throat> pained, elegiac uh, um, and, and, and agonized sort of wrestling with some of these issues, um, which therefore has rather a different tone and rather a different focus from the rest of the book, but to a certain extent, I, I hope, kind of pre-haunts what comes before. And what I'm going to do, you know, what I'm going to do now is, is something that I would never do with, if, I was, if I was here to talk about fiction, uh, things I've written, which is I'm going to read from the ending of the book um, because one of, the great, one of the great tragedies for us is that you know, spoiler warnings are kind of redundant um, on this issue. So what that does mean is that this reading, which is um, a collection of different sections kind of uh, pieced together from the final chapter... Um, it does have a somewhat different tone and a different kind of approach than the rest of the book. So I say that as a caveat um, uh, uh, that the, the, the bulk of the book attempts to do a slightly different job, of which this is a, a gestural rumination afterwards. The strange book, What is to be Done, casts a long shadow. In 1902, Lenin named his seminal tract on leftist organization after that book of 40 years previously. Nikolai Chernyshevsky's story is interspersed with dream sequences. In the most celebrated, the protagonist, Vera Pavlovna, journeys from the ancient past to a strange, affecting, utopian future. The hinge of the dream, the fulcrum from history to possibility, consists in its entirety of two rows of dots something ostentatiously unspoken. Behind that ellipsis lay revolution. With such discretion, the author evaded the censor. But there is something almost religious, too, in this unwriting from this atheist son of a priest. Apophatic theology considers God as beyond language. Here is an apophatic revolutionism. In its potential for utter reconfiguration, revolution is beyond words, a messianic interruption, but one that emerges from the quotidian, unsayable, yet the culmination of everyday exhortations. Oh, my love, now I know all your freedom. I know that it will come. Chernyshevsky has Vera urgently gasp after the wordlessness. But what will it be like? Today, that question can only hurt. Late evening, 26th of October, 1917, the day after the insurrection, Lenin speaks his first famous words to the Congress of Soviets. We shall now proceed to construct the socialist order. The war is ended, comes a hushed exclamation from the hall. The war is ended. Delegates sob. They break, not into celebratory but funereal song, honouring those who have died in this struggle for this moment. But the war is not yet ended, and the order to come will be anything but socialist. For a while, Lenin remains bullish about the prospects for international revolution, long held to be the only context in which the Russian revolution might survive. 
Germany is in the throes of dramatic upheaval. A Soviet government arises in Hungary. Struggles erupt in Austria. Italy sees two red years. But instance by instance, the wave is quelled. The Bolsheviks wake up to their isolation as the situation within their borders, too, becomes desperate. From 1918 to 1921, they must fight several counter-revolutionary or white forces backed by foreign powers. By 1919, Russian territory is occupied by American, French, British, Japanese, German, Serbian and Polish troops. Socialism is more irksome to the Americans and British and French than are their wartime foes. Churchill is obsessed in particular with the foul baboonery of Bolshevism. As the war ends, he declares his intention to kill the Bolshe, kiss the Hun. The Allies screw down an embargo against a starving population. White forces unleash butchery, burning villages, killing tens of thousands of Jews in enthusiastic pogroms, performing exemplary tortures. Not Italian, but Russian would have given the world the word for fascism, Trotsky claims, had they won. These are months and years of unspeakable barbarity and suffering, starvation, mass death, the near total collapse of industry and culture, of banditry and cannibalism. The beleaguered regime unleashes its own red terror. And its reach and depth expands beyond control. Some agents of the Cheka, the political police, seduced by personal power, sadism, or the degradation of the moment, are, without question, thugs and murderers. Others carry out their work with anguish. One may feel sceptical, even disgusted, at an attempt under desperate necessity at some ethical terror, a terror as limited as possible, but the testimonials of agents tormented at what they believed they had no choice but to do, are powerful. I have spilt so much blood I no longer have any right to live, says the drunken and distraught Czech ahead Zhezhinsky in 1918. Many of the Soviet regime's leaders struggle to restrain the degrading tendencies of their own terror, of which they are horribly aware, but a political and moral rot is setting in. Faced with collapse, the regime rolls back the desperate militarised control known as war communism. From 1921 to 27, it encourages some private enterprise. Spivs and wheeler dealers and hustlers make good on speculation and burgeoning black markets. The country labours through a rubble of industry, agriculture and the working class itself. The bureaucratic apparatus becomes suspended now above the remnants of that very class for which it claims to speak. Lenin's health is failing. He struggles in what has been called his final fight against the bureaucratic tendencies, the ossification and corruption he sees spreading. He grows suspicious of Stalin's personality and his place within the machine, insists he be removed from his post as general secretary, his advice is not followed. Lenin dies in 1924, the most ostentatious element of the grotesque death cult that is launched remains in place today, his gnarled and ghastly corpse receiving obeisance from its catafalque. 
1924, against the protests of Trotsky, among others, the party performs a giddying about-face. It accepts now Stalin's claim that, in general, the victory of socialism is unconditionally possible in one country. This is a dramatic reversal of a foundational thesis. And the shift is born of despair as prospects for international support recede. But if it is utopian to hope that help is around the corner, how much more so is it to wager on the impossible, on autarkic socialism? A hard-headed pessimism would have been less damaging than this bad hope. Its effects are devastating. As any vestigial culture of debate and democracy withers, Stalin builds up his power, his own status as most equal of all. Party activists are hounded to betray each other, to confess to preposterous crimes with stentorian declarations. They are executed by this counter-revolution against their tradition in that tradition's name. And with this degradation comes a revival of statism and anti-Semitism and nationalism and bleakly reactionary norms and culture, sexuality, family life, Stalinism, a police state of paranoia, cruelty, murder and kitsch. After a protracted sumerki, the word means both twilight and the darkness before dawn, a long spell of what the poet Osip Mandelstam, remembering the start of 1917, calls liberty's dim light. What might have been a sunrise becomes a sunset. What the left oppositionist Victor Serge indeed calls midnight in the century. There have been a hundred years of crude, ahistorical, ignorant, bad faith and opportunist attacks on October. Without echoing such sneers, we must nonetheless interrogate the revolution. The old regime was vile and violent, Russian liberalism weak and quick to make common cause with reaction. All the same, is the gulag the telos of 1917? That old question. That objective strains face the new regime is clear. And there are subjective factors too, questions we must pose. Nothing is given. But had, say, the internationalists of other groups not walked out on the night of the revolution, a less monolithic and embattled government just might have been an outcome, which is not to exonerate the Bolsheviks for their own mistakes or worse. In January 1923, Lenin rather startlingly allows as incontrovertible that Russia had not been ready for revolution in 1917. But he wonders pugnaciously whether a people influenced by the hopelessness of its situation could be blamed for flinging itself into a struggle that would offer it at least some chance of securing conditions for the further development of civilization that were somewhat unusual. It is not absurd to argue that the ground down of Russia had no real choice but to act on the chance, the wager, that in so doing they might alter their situation. The party's shift after Lenin's death from that plaintive, embattled sense that there had been little alternative but to strive in imperfect conditions to the later bad hope of socialism in one country is a baleful result of recasting necessity 
as virtue. We see a similar curdling tendency in the depiction of war communism as desiderata rather than desperation, or of censorship, say, as an expression of anything other than weakness. We see it in the traducing and misrepresentation of opponents. Those on the side of the revolution must engage with these failures and crimes. To do otherwise is to fall into apologia, special pleading, hagiography, and to risk repeating mistakes. It is not for nostalgia's sake that the strange story of the first socialist revolution in history deserves celebration. The standard of October declares that things changed once, and they might do so again. October, for an instant, brings a new kind of power. Fleetingly, there is a shift towards workers' control of production, the rights of peasants to the land, equal rights for men and women in work and in marriage, the right to divorce, maternity support, the decriminalisation of homosexuality 100 years ago, national self-determination, free and universal education, the expansion of literacy, and a cultural explosion, a thirst to learn, a change in the soul as much as in the factory. And though these moments are snuffed out, become bleak jokes and memories all too soon, it might have been otherwise. It might have been different, for these were only the first and most faltering steps. These revolutionaries want a new country in a new world, one they cannot see but believe they can build, and they believe that in so doing, they, the builders, will also build themselves anew. It would be absurd, a ridiculous myopia, to hold up October as a simple lens through which to view struggles of today. But it has been a long century, a long dusk of spite and cruelty, the excrescence and essence of its time. Twilight, even remembered twilight, is better than no light at all. It would be equally absurd to say that there is nothing we can learn from the revolution, to deny that the Sumerki of October could be ours, and that it need not always be followed by night. The journalist John Reed reports the speech of one anti-revolutionary politician to his colleagues. It is beneath our dignity to be shot down here in the street by switchmen, he says. Then, what he meant by switchmen, John Reed reports, I never discovered. There is a probable answer in an unlikely place. In 1917, the Yiddish writer Chaim Grade was a young child in Lithuania. Many years later, in the glossary to the English translation of his memoirs, he describes the switchmen's booths along the railroad tracks in the vicinity of Vilna. Before the revolution of 1917, he says, the area around the forest shacks was the clandestine meeting place for the local revolutionaries. It seems likely that the word switchman was an epithet then for revolutionaries. There was a kind of bleak rigour to the dogmas of many who opposed the revolution, including on the left. The epochs, according to their view, their stagism, must succeed one another perforce like stations along a line. And Russia was not ready if it would ever be. Little wonder such thinkers would scorn the Bolsheviks as switchmen. <coughs> what could be more inimical to any trace of te teleology than those who take account of the alternate lines of history, or who take to them? 
The revolution of 1917 is a revolution of trains, history proceeding in screams of cold metal. The Tsar's wheeled palace shunted onto the sidings forever. Lenin's sealed, stateless carriage. Trains crisscrossing Russia, heavy with desperate deserters. Revolutions, Marx said, are the locomotives of history. Put the locomotive into top gear, Lenin exhorted himself in a private note weeks after October, and keep it on the rails. But how, if there is one true way, one line, and it is blocked? In 1937, Bruno Schultz ruminates dizzyingly on events that have no place of their own in time. The possibility that all the seats within time might have been sold. Conductor, where are you? Don't let's get excited. Have you ever heard of parallel streams of time within a two-track time? Yes, there are such branch lines of time, somewhat illegal and suspect, But when, like us, one is burdened with contraband of supernumerary events that cannot be registered, one cannot be too fussy. Let us try to find at some point of history such a branch line, a blind track onto which to shunt these illegal events. There is nothing to fear. By the forest shacks are the points, the switches onto hidden tracks through wilder history. The question is not only who should be driving the engine, but where. There are those with something to fear, and they police these suspect, illegal branch lines, all the while insisting that they do not exist. And onto such tracks, the revolutionaries divert their train, with its contraband cargo, unregisterable, supernumerary, powering for a horizon, an edge as far away as ever, and yet careering closer, or so it looks from the liberated train in liberty's dim light. Thank you. Thank you. So that is a, a kind of coagulated selections from the final chapter um, of October, the story of the Russian Revolution, uh, that at one point I was minded to call the strange story of the Russian Revolution. I felt a little bit arch in the end. But one of the things about the research for this is that <clears throat> irrespective of your politics, irrespective of where you stand in relation to this, and I think it's fairly clear where I stand, um, it is also just an amazing story. Um, and one of the, this is a line I've used before, so I apologize, but one of the things that happened a lot is, uh, particularly as someone who's written a lot more fiction than nonfiction, I was repeatedly aware of these moments in which, if I wrote this as fiction, any editor worth their salt would say, you've got to dial that down, it's just too much, no one is going to buy this, you know, no one is going to buy... But the head of the provisional government, Kerensky, who becomes this extraordinary figure of, of um, opposition, that his dad was Lenin's headmaster. That's just too much. You need to dial that down. But, but you know what? <laughs> he was this headmaster. Um, so I think we have, and that's just one of many examples I could give you. We have, uh, I think, quite a lot of time if people have questions or comments or whatever. Do you want? Thank you. That was, uh, that was great. Um, Thank you. In your novel, The City and the City, it, it, that book was like heavy with the weight of the failed revolution in a way because it's like the bits of detritus that, serve, that you know, washed on the shore after the Russian Revolution. And I was reading it and, um, 
it felt in places like maybe the characters could affect real change into the world around them and um, into the you know condition of Bejal and Olkoma. And I was wondering, um, but then it sort of it fell back and it, it you know that didn't happen. And I was wondering what what your thinking was when you were composing, you know, those elements of the book that were you know tied to the former Soviet Union, uh, and whether that you got any insights from that as a creator in insights about the real world or insights from the real world into that creation. Um. It didn't. It wasn't particularly uh, um, something that I was very consciously riffing off. To a certain extent, the the consciousness of riffing off uh, revolutionary moments was stronger in Iron Council, which is an earlier book. Um, and I, I, to, to some extent, it's very difficult to talk about these things without giving things away because here we are in the realm where spoilers might actually matter. Um, but I guess. Um, I, I, on, in terms of that sense of like potentiality and what happens to it, I, I think one, all I can really say in, in, in vague terms to try not to, to spoil things is that one of the paradoxes that I deal with quite a lot is, uh, which I um, intimate there, is this notion that if you try to respect seriously the scale of of change that uh, that, that, that that a, that a kind of revolutionary upheaval should um, portend then it becomes literally unrepresentable because you are definitionally writing from a position where it hasn't happened yet, unless you're writing about a successful one in the aftermath, which tragically we aren't. Um, so for me, a lot of the writing in various elliptical and more or less elliptical ways becomes about how, how does one find ways of, of dealing with an unrepresentability, which I think is not just uh, a kind of being a bit fast and loose or being evasive it is about fidelity fidelity to this idea requires that and that's where Iron Council comes in. In terms of um, the city and the city, I mean I was very deliberately uh, quite careful not to pin things down too specifically so it's more a question of I mean you used, I think you used the term detritus which I quite like, I mean there's this notion of you know, I mean, what there is certainly is a kind of, you know, Trotskyist combined and uneven development of capitalism in these two cities for anyone who cares. Uh, but it is definitely there. And, and part of the way of thinking about that is simply to, to kind of use a lot of kind of flotsam and debris of, uh, that, that feels the intention is to have a sense of kind of cultural deja vu without being particularly necessarily able to pin it down exactly. Um, and some of that kind of Eastern, not just Russia, but the, the, the sort of Eastern European Weltanschauung kind of um, comes through particularly in Beschel. At least I was reading a lot of Eastern European literature at the time quite deliberately. And to a certain extent, even the language is intended to sound as if it has been translated from, translated well, hopefully, from something from, a, from an Eastern European language. Uh, so your comments about the uh, weirdness of the revolution and how if you were to write fiction that would be completely impossible to um, actually take it. Uh, do you look at that and the, the state of things then and also very similar circumstances around the world in the past, say now, and think that that has something to do with how people actually perceive things? Like they can't possibly really get that all these weird, complicated things could happen where 
if you're say reading a novel, like no, that never happened, and the only reason mm-hmm. you accepted this, it actually happened, and that you can't like see. Yeah. If I'm understanding you correctly, I I, I, I agree. I, I I agree with that. I think one of the one of the paradoxes of like I remember I can't remember who it was, but I remember seeing a writer uh, who had been um, his novel was a kind of novelization that was based quite. It was a novel, but it was based not not lightly on various real events, and he was criticised uh, by certain reviewers. Um, for I'm not being coy, by the way. I literally can't remember who it was, but I remember this um, this this thing where he he was criticised for these kind of unbelievable coincidences, and he his response was, yeah, but this actually happened. See, this happened, so it's not unbelievable. And my counter response was, that's irrelevant. You know, if if you're if you're pitching it as fiction, you know, unfortunately for you, fiction you can't feel too on the nose. You know, whereas the you know the the, the scriptwriters of reality have no such restraint. Um, they, they they are perfectly able to make you know like you read that you know you read in the Russian Revolution and it's like the, the you know but in, in all kinds of different directions. So you have these moments of like courage and, and and integrity and so on that you know Hollywood would ruin with schmaltzy music and whatnot, but that are just unbearably moving. You know, and then at other points, you know, ridiculous. Like base farce, like just kind of like um, you know, like the night of the revolution, someone is running around to find a red, um, you know, a red lantern because that's going to be the signal to start firing on the Winter Palace, and he falls into the mud, and it's just like you know, this is like this is, come on now, this isn't very dignified, you know, we're going to cut that scene, we're going to leave it on the cutting room floor. So um, yes, I think I mean reality is is much more ridiculous a lot of the time. Um, I, I get a sense of a kind of uh, occult hinterland to your question, perhaps to do with the, the kind of um, the sheer unbelievableness of the situation we're in. Um, uh, you know, one, it would be comforting if reality was scripted by someone with better taste, because they wouldn't have done. It. They were, you know, they wouldn't have done this. Uh, but as I say, you know, you cannot rely on the scriptwriters of reality. They will never let restraint temper their, you know, kitsch idiocies. <laughs> It's for me more that people have a bad, like, are not very good at predicting or understanding when it does happen. But yeah, you definitely got most of what I'm saying. A lot of it is also to do with the kind of the contingencies. Like, one of the things that comes through researching the revolution, because I'm, I'm not a historian, I don't pretend to be, but what I, I did do is spend basically two years or more steeping myself in the literature. And one of the things that comes through is this complicated oscillation between very powerful senses of historical force and pull through uh, which you could you know, I would I would never gloss as inevitability because I don't think that's how it works but th- there's a very strong kind of tendential pull combined sometimes with extraordinary kind of as I say contingencies like random factors that you can't predict that come up that that become you know um, wild cards uh, aleatory you know so um, uh, so 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 that was something that was very kind of startling all the way through I think I'm sorry, I can't see in all directions there. Uh, hi. Um, so I, I read October uh, last week, and it was really good. Oh, thank you. Um, but, uh, so, I uh, knew there was going to be a buzz. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, all this stuff about, like, Lennon, Kerensky, it's all very interesting, right? But for me, the most moving part was your um, sort of the portrait of the masses mm-hmm. that comes out. There's a lot of uh, the people in Petersburg, soldiers, peasants, and um, there's a lot, there's examples, you know, of, of sort of white people who've been 
downtrodden their whole lives of suddenly audaciously asserting their dignity, right? But then there's other examples of random violence and crime and so forth. And I'm just wondering how you define a revolutionary moment. Is it when, when people feel this freedom to throw off all these restraints? And is it possible to separate all the violence and chaos from the, uh, from the dignity and freedom that comes out in those moments? Or are they inseparable? Um, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, the question of the definition of a revolution is, is as you doubtless know, I mean, it's vast, um, and, you know, books have been and will continue to be written on that exact point. I mean, I, um, I can only kind of gesture at, at, at some approach to that here. I mean, I think for me, because, because, because the word is also cheapened by kind of overuse and misuse and so on, but I think for me... Um, you know, when, when you're talking about a degree of, you know, serious radical change, um, and particularly for me, the, the, the stakes, the stakes in October itself, even as compared to February, where, f- for an instant, there is a there is a self-conscious attempt to overturn an entire social and economic system. You know, um, but 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 even in a in a kind of, um, you know, uh, perhaps less kind of self-consciously dramatic levels something where you have a kind of sweeping away of an established order I think I mean I don't have a problem with this is one of the questions that keeps coming up is um, is you know do you think we can still have revolutions today and it's like well we had some just a minute ago you know like and I'm not being glib about that I mean you know if you you're on the streets of Tahrir you know, scant days and weeks before Mubarak was overthrown, you know, it felt like nothing would ever change. You know what I mean? So so one of the great terrible notions that has kind of s- sedimented down is that this is only a historical issue. And the, the scary thing about that is is that when it happens, you know, in in plain view, it's always exceptionalised. Yeah, but that's over there. Yeah, but that was an exceptional case. Yeah, but... And so on. So... To a certain extent, I say, I know it when I see it, um, and I'm okay with that, you know. Um, in terms of the question of the violence and so on, I mean, I agree with you, incidentally. The, the most, for me, the most moving documents of the revolution are the letters. This was, it became this kind of epistolary explosion, and often, like, one person writing letters for their village or their unit, because they were the only person who was literate, and you have these just just unbelievable letters coming back and forth across the whole country um, sort of desperately trying to find out information some of them very eccentric, many of them expressed in this kind of ecstatic religiosity but a kind of very radical religiosity um, and I find that sort of uh, that, that sort of that, that expression of that kind of millennial yearning um, you know just unendingly powerful um, I suspect that the simple answer to your question is no. I suspect at a moment of upheaval, no, you will never be able, you will never get a kind of, if you like, a clean-handed, you know, you get the liberty and emancipation without some of the shit. I suspect that will never happen. But what I do think, I think part of, if you like, the job of people who are interested in, 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 in this, in emancipation, is to try to, uh, is, is, is to try to, to kind of be on the side of, of, of as little of the of, of the of, of the of the violence and so on as possible. What's interesting about that is that because I realise that sounds like a kind of rather um, a, a, a rather obvious sort of sloganeering thing to say, but what I think is interesting about it is the extent to which when people talk about like political vanguards, if you want to use that term, it's a contested term, but kind of political leadership, 
it's always, or not always, it's generally talked of in terms of, you know, persuading people to do certain things or pushing them in certain ways. In fact, I think one of the things that comes up again and again and again in revolutionary moments is that the most, if you like, the most politically self-conscious groups among the leadership, one of the things they are doing is restraint. Restraint. So you have these amazing scenes like in, in Russia where Antonov, the great revolutionary, you know, has the, the hated provisional government. He's arrested them and he goes out and, the, and the, the people of Petrograd, there's masses of people out there and they're going to kill them. He's like, you do not touch them. You do not touch these people. They are my prisoners. They're under my uh, protection. And this goes back to the Paris Commune. You have exactly the same thing in the Paris Commune. You have the communards, the most sort of radical groups of the communards, trying to get between the raging people on the streets and the, you know, hated bourgeois um, uh, hostages, trying to stop them being killed, not out of any love for them, but out of a sense of, like, you know, you, we will not, this is not what we are doing. And I think, so yes, I think, I think terrible things are inevitable in a moment of upheaval. Um, and it is precisely about the extent of, of kind of political seriousness and perspicacity that that one can, one hopes, kind of dampen that and, can, and, 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 and push what it, what it is actually about. I've lost my... Yeah. Oh. All right, um, I'm going to try to word this properly. It's kind of a thing. Um, so I listened to your, your Chapo Trap House interview. And um, yeah, shout out to Chapo Trap House. Um, and there... Midway through the through the interview, there was this conversation about power and how power was being used, and how reluctant people were in the revolution yeah. right after people took power. And you mentioned this in the in the epilogue reading, where um, the, the war has ended, but the war still continues. And I I think there's a similar dialogue of what ha how does power look like when. Uh, because I think, I don't know, I, I think about you know contemporary politics now and there's all this talk about of people, but it doesn't seem like there's this accurate vision of how that power will be used. And I, I don't know if, I don't even know how to even frame that as a question, but I was curious if you could like sort of, I haven't, I haven't read October yet, but um, if there's this point in the book where you could speak on that, um, of just this notion of power and what happened. Because you, you mentioned also too, like the this sort of a, um, of, of people, it just uh, keeps like it, it, it doesn't just happen in 1917. Um, there's moments after that follow all the way up to 1989. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's just um, yeah. that theme of yeah. hope taking power and what what is done with it. If you can speak yeah. to that, well, there's a there's an important kind of um, sort of caveat here, which is like one of the things that I'm very wary of doing is a kind of uh, glib analogy. So one of the things that, you know, people, that part of me, part of me dreads the question, you know, what are the lessons for today? Because um, it's too often, I think, deployed in a really reductive and unhelpful way. And particularly one of the things for the book, uh, you know, this is, a, it is a book about a historical moment and that those historical particularities and specificities are absolutely key to that narrative. What I'm not saying is that there are no lessons to be learned and that there are no interesting and important issues about power. So I'm not saying that there's nothing we can, we can talk about there. What I, but I, but I, I need to sort of say that because when I was talking about that kind of reluctance to take power, I'm talking about a very, very specific phenomenon, a very odd phenomenon, which was particularly around uh, in these months, in the months between February and October, uh, particularly in the sort of first 
two-thirds half of that year, which was this, this, this situation that was known as dual power, in which you had uh, a representative of the kind of um, the revolutionary working class and peasantry and, and soldiers that were in a kind of very odd balancing act with the provisional government. And there was this constant oscillation about, like, you know, the question of where does actually power lie. What made it even weirder was that the, for, for the bulk of that time, especially at the beginning, the people who had the most power in the, in the Soviet, because of their particular theories of history, were very resistant to taking power, despite the fact that in many cases they were where power lay, particularly in the views of people on the street. So, for example, when there was a big... Uh, demonstration for women's suffrage in April, I think it was, and this wasn't a hard left demonstration, um, the demonstrators marched to the Soviets. Now, they were, they, were, they were wanting, like, women's suffrage in a kind of, you know, relatively sort of straightforward bourgeois democratic way, but they went to the Soviet because that's where they felt the power lay. But because of, and this is a huge topic, it's very interesting, because of the way their theories worked, they were very resistant to taking power. So this culminates, I think I mentioned this in the Chapo interview, actually, this culminates in this very famous and extraordinary scene in July where one of the leaders of the Soviet is out uh, and is, is in danger of being lynched by these, this mass thousands of people on the streets and someone gets up in his face and says, take power, you son of a bitch, when it is given to you. And this is, so this is the amazing paradox of this moment. It's not just like two, two groups wrestling for power, who will win? It's like one group wrestling not to take power while loads of people on the streets are saying take power and the other one that wants the power and that for a lot of that time really doesn't have any functional power. Um, all of which is a way of saying like I, I, I think it would be really unhelpful to sort of try and draw analogies now. Um, I think... One of the things that's very exciting about about uh, 1917 from from February on, but particularly in the latter part of the year, but, but is is the sense that power becomes a real issue, and dignity. You mentioned dignity; the two are inextricable. Power and dignity become a real issue for millions of people who have, for not just for their lives, but for the lives of their parents and their grandparents and so on, have have just been told, you know, this isn't for you. Dignity, agency, power of any kind is not for you. So just leave that alone. Put that to one side, you know. Um, and I think that one of the things I do think, one of the analogies I would cautiously make is, is that, you know, I think one of the, the most powerful political... Um, uh, one of the most powerful forces against change, and I see this in Britain a lot all the time, and I, I think here too, is just this kind of um, deadened sense that has been pushed over a very, very long time that you have no power, you have no right to any power, and that, frankly, you and the pe you know, people will be punished for not just for trying to have, for, for desiring it. You know, you, you know, the best you get to hope for is to basically make your peace with your lot. And if you do more than that, you will be punished by the universe. And that is a big, you know, that, that, that shift at the beginning of October. On the one hand, it's incredibly depressing because it is like a kind of, like a kind of blanket of ashes, you know, a, a mile thick. On the other hand, one of the things that, here's another analogy for you, one of the things that 1917 does show you is that, um, you know, a mile of ashes can be blown away unbelievably fast. When it turns, it turns on a dime. So I am both very pessimistic and always something else as well. <laughs> I, I just wanted to 
ask you about ideology and theory, but I'd like to preface it with a little anecdote. In 1967, my husband and I found ourselves in the Soviet Union. He was a graduate student at Columbia and he was doing research. And the day of the 50th anniversary celebration, we had worked our way through the concentric circles of security with our shabby clothes and our US passports and found ourselves in front of the National Hotel watching the parade. Joining us were communists from all over the world, including the Italians the women in their fur coats. Well, these were all Italian communists. Trays of caviar and champagne being brought out to them. And in retrospect, there was probably more revolutionary activity going on on the west side of Manhattan than there was in Red Square that day. Um, so it's the end of ideology, the end of theory, and certainly by the following spring, 1968, it just got swept away. Um, so my question to you is, how do you remain ideologically faithful or faithful to theory? That was the, when I got home, we got home, the night we flew in, the Soviets were moving into Czechoslovakia. We saw the zipper in Times Square and announced it. It was the end. It was the end. Uh, I had no belief in the theory, but I at least respected its logic, its, uh, its maybe historical inevitability, if you like. So what happens when you write this book to theory, ideology, belief of your own? I presume when you talk about theory, you're talking specifically about Marxist theory. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean... And, you know, who's dating revolution? Yeah. Well... I think one of the things that uh, certainly that I've been wrestling with in the last um, five years, particularly, I mean, longer than that, but certainly in the last five years, uh, as a result of various kind of political upheavals, has been the negotiation of, um, of fidelity and renewal. Um, because on the one hand, you know, I, I uh, since, since, since becoming a Marxist, which is over a quarter of a century ago, I, I have not felt myself, you know, sort of um, kind of like that that theory kind of coming under a kind of sustained attack that has shaken me from it. But that's partly because I hope and, and aspire to like not having been sort of um, dogmatic or uncritical about it in the first place. And certainly one of the interesting things for me um, is that I think I get, I get less dogmatic, more more, uh, I wouldn't say more critical, but certainly, um, yeah, maybe more critical, but without uh, sort of shaking, uh, it, for me that becomes, a, that becomes a moment of renewal, um, because the core tenets of that theory for me, which are about, um, you know, which are about, for me, and I, I, that's an important specific thing, you know, which, which revolve around, you know, a particular view of um, uh, of understanding of the way history works, the way uh, politics and economics works, and and a, a sense that you know this is this is not this is not the necessarily the end of history, and that we you know that the, the wager that we can do better is worth it, 
It's never, it's never been shaken. Now, what is absolutely true is that as I get um, uh, older, I, I find more and more spaces of, if you like, the kind of the lacunae and the aporia within that theory. But I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but for me, I think that can almost become a source of, of renewal and strength. Like, I am very interested in trying to forge a tradition of Marxism that incorporates its own silences, that incorporates, that, that doesn't, like, one of the things that's been very, um, I'm sorry, I realise I'm being a bit bitty about this because I'm thinking on oh, the hoof. What? I'm being a bit, I'm sort of, I'm probably being no, a little I scattered. Um, but, like, one of the things that I have found very exciting in the last mostly dreadful three years um, with a few less dreadful moments. One of the things that's been very exciting to me is the death of know-it-allism. The number of nostrums, including on the left, the number of times that people have assured their comrades that such and such cannot happen, and then it proceeds to happen. And most of the things that they've been assured can't happen, you know, I mean, Trump, obviously. Um, <laughs> like, the actual concrete thing is a terrible thing. But the fact of the destruction of that of that pig-headed certainty is good. It is good for us. It is good for us as political theorists. It is good for us as activists. We have been working on old, broken algorithms, and the machine doesn't work that way anymore. And one of the things it should force in us is a bit of humility and theoretical humility. And that, I suppose, is how I try to negotiate uh, fidelity and renewal. But you can't turn away from theory in principle. I mean... The old notion in the abstract of theory and ideology, it still will not fail you. Well, I mean, again, I need to be clear on your terms. If you mean, um, you know, I'm not prepared to turn away from Marxism, sure I am. I mean, I, I'm a Marxist not because I'm committed to being a Marxist come what may. I'm a Marxist because Marxism, you know, in, 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 the, in the, the, the version that I have been striving towards for 25 years has always, uh, you know, and that has undergone mutations, absolutely, and changes, but has always been far more um, uh, persuasive to me in explaining the world than anything else. If you mean I'm not prepared to give up theory to could, no, because to me that sense of attempting to rationally and rigorously understand the world um, uh, and that it can so be done even if you acknowledge that there will be lacunae um, uh, has, has been immensely intellectually emancipatory. And I'll, I'll end on this one thing. One of the key reasons that I don't give up on uh, on theory at all and Marxist theory in general is because I don't just believe that the social universe is is um, you know is is I don't be, I don't believe it's not I, I don't just believe that it's knowable in some sense that that that, that, that we can sort of apply um, you know our reason and so on to it and that reason incidentally needs to include the surpluses the the blank spaces this is something I keep um, mentioning. But also for me, there's a very important notion here, which is about totality. Um, not all of my, you know, one of my fellow salvage editors, Richard, would probably disagree with this. So this is not, you know, you, you can, you know, reasonable people can disagree on this. But one of the one of the, the reasons that I find thinking in these political terms so powerful is I remember when I was becoming very shaken up politically when I was about 19, and I had this sense, and I couldn't quite put it into words, and I ended up trying to articulate it and it was that like it was like Mickey Mouse uh, the exchange rate between France and America in 1973 women's oppression in um, various you know quasi gatherer hunter societies 
and uh, trade union activism and uh, you know Moby Dick are connected <laughs> they're connected and that sense of totality and living in a totality uh, and a totality that must be understood and wrestled with remains very very key to the way I think about and act in the world you're a creature of the enlightenment Oh, I would say I'm a very sceptical um, child of the Enlightenment, actually, increasingly, but that's a whole other... Maybe we can... <laughs> Just a very short question, sort of in that framework of the ashes that you talked about. There seems to be one component that people really recoil from, and that is today, that's the idea of organization. And I was wondering, in the two years of looking at this, sort of if you what your thoughts were as you were looking at this, because one thing that lacks, that we see lacking today that the Bolsheviks came out of was really a strong sense of organization, and then divisions based on, you know, there were anarchists who spoke yeah. with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I was wondering if you had any reflections, sort of, not the lesson for today, sort of, yeah. but just thoughts in that regard. Well, I mean, uh, in a way, nothing that I sort of didn't touch on in, in, in the reading, which is I, I, um, I think uh, organization is, is key. Uh, and I think that there, uh, you know, part of the reason that organization is key is because people, including us, all of us, including the people, you know, who are long-term activists and so on, change our minds. People change their minds. And to me, organization is ultimately... In, in, in a key part is a question of consciousness. And the moment you start talking about consciousness, people will often sort of sort of, uh, uh, people who want to attack the left will sort of say, oh, you're so patronizing talking about changing the workers' consciousness. And I'm like, let me be clear, changing my consciousness. I don't know about you, I've changed my mind in my life. If you haven't, you know, wow. Um, but, so for me, organization is a key part of thinking about what, what goes on when people change their minds and, 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 and or begin to act on their, you know, their, their ideas in particular ways. One of the very key um, uh, sort of um, constraints on that, though, I think is this thing about... Which I which I go into in longer de- detail in the in the actual book version is this thing about uh, well two things one is not turning necessities into virtues you know you may be forced by circumstances into particular shapes including particular organisational shapes that's fine they may even be you know they may be necessary um, but don't pretend that they're like you know uh, uh, you know uh, a statement of socialist principles or something that is literally worse than nothing that is that is the worst thing you can do and the second thing is not ossifying these things so um you know, uh, a lot of uh, on the far left, there, there. Ha- I mean, I don't want to parody. There have sometimes been quite ignoble traditions of taking frozen moments from left history and treating them as kind of eternal, eternal symptoms. I mean, most famously, if you are a kind of far left nerd, one of the questions is about you know whether or not organisations um, should allow factions. You know, like if you're in a revolutionary organization, are you allowed factions? And what has often been said was, you know, we don't allow factions. The Bolsheviks didn't allow factions. It's very important because that way you work with one, one voice, which is like, okay, well, A, in the here and now, who gives a shit what the Bolsheviks said? At least as a, at least as a primary, like, like you can't just say, well, they did it, therefore we're doing it. You can certainly learn lessons from it, but that's a separate thing. And B, that's not true. There were specific moments when that happened, and we can argue about whether or not it was the right thing to do, 
I'm very unconvinced it was the right thing to do. But even if you think it was, it happened in a specific moment for specific reasons, and don't pretend it was an eternal principle. So I think those would be my very strong kind of cautions about organization, uh, organizational lessons, I guess. But the fact of it and its necessity, yes, I'm not some, I'm very <sighs> skeptical about, um, not sectarian towards, but skeptical about the, you know, uh, the, the e- I'm very troubled by the ease with which s- spontaneism and, and, and horizontality can dissipate, essentially. Yeah. Um, really good. Very good to hear you, um, and I'm very intrigued. I haven't read your book. I read a very interesting review in the London Review of Books that reviewed your book, which was a review of various books about the October Revolution. And I must admit, I'm totally unfamiliar with your novels. I don't read science fiction. I don't read fantasy. Um, I think I live in a fantasy world sometimes. But um, I do want to say that I really appreciate hearing you. I was wondering, the question I wanted to ask you is, what are your thoughts today about other revolutions that are, that are occurring in the world today, like uh, the Cuban Revolution, the Vietnamese, uh, China. Um, I mean, are they, are they revolutionary countries, societies, in your opinion, or not? Um, or other revolutionary movements, like the Zapatistas, or um, movements of, of homeless people in the United States, or, yeah. or others. I mean, so that my general idea, yeah. not particularly germane to the book, but... Um. It's um, nice of you to mention the LRB review, um, and I will take the opportunity to also mention it. Um, it was uh, well, it, it was it was very nice for me because uh, I mean one of the things is as I you know my line about this is not a history for leftists but it's a history by a leftist. Um, you know the the writer of that review, Sheila Fitzpatrick, doesn't share my politics at all, and it was a very it was a very it was a very sort of generous um, thoughtful review. She made that perfectly clear, but she also said you know it's a good book and so on. That meant a lot to me for two reasons. One is that hers was the first book on the Russian Revolution I ever read. And though, despite the differences in our politics, I have great respect for her as a scholar and, um, and, a, and, and a specialist on this. And the other was, um, I, though I am not a historian, the book is written with certain kind of rules and rules of rigor. So, you know, nothing is invented. No character, no fleeting mention, no speech is invented. It's all taken from the literature. And although it is a book that particularly has the general reader in mind, it was very important to me that it sort of passed the test of the specialists. And so, you know, I gave the draft to lots of various scholars were extremely generous with me and, um, you know, and I owe them a great deal. But the, she, she says at one point, you know, he's not a historian, but he's done his homework. And I was like, that, I could not ask for anything more, you know. So that was... Um, so thanks for that check. Um, in terms of the question of other revolutions, I mean, it's diff- well. I mean, one would have to one would have to talk about all of them uh, individually. I mean, do I think you know China is a revolutionary regime? No. Um, do you know Cuba is an interesting one? I I have spent a little time in Cuba. My mother used to live in Cuba, and I know that this is a very divisive issue. My own opinion is that um, uh, no, I don't. I mean, I, I it doesn't gainsay the importance of the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the kind of radicalism of the moment and certain aspects of the kind of the heroism and the importance of, of, of what happened to say that I do not hold Cuba to be a socialist country. I, 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 don't, think that's, um, I don't think that's how it works, and I, I certainly don't hold it up as a model for my own, you know, kind of um, uh, radical aspirations, you know. I mean, we could do a whole kind of list. I, I don't want to... Um, but I think one of the... One of the things that has happened, I think, is that 
this was a point made in an event that we did the other day, is that Russia, this is where this does actually dovetail with the book, the, the, the Russian Revolution, I think the, 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 the regime that sprang up in what for me was essentially kind of the rubble of the revolution, particularly after 1924 and beyond, became in many, in many cases the model for revolutionary movements elsewhere. And that created a very kind of tragic and, you know, kind of wrenching situation where these absolutely, for me, these absolutely sincere and important and in some cases very important politically, sort of, if you like, progressive, it's a very vague term, moments were kind of um, culverted into a form that was held up as a sort of, as an alternative that for me ultimately was not an emancipatory alternative at all. Um, And so a lot of 20th century history seems to me to be the results of that. I'm aware that, you know, not everyone's going to agree, and this is a huge argument, but you asked the question, so that's my kind of base, basic position on this, I think. Um, do we have time for one more, or are we... Yeah, uh, I think I've got somebody back here. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> hi, thanks. I apologize, I'm not from here, I'm a tourist, so I'll try to deal with the language. Um, I, I, I bought the book um, two days ago, and I was trapped by the title and October is a very important word for many of us. But I was definitely trapped, I, I read the introduction here in, in, in the bookstore, and I was trapped by these, uh, this idea of um, the unfinished sentences of the revolution. Uh, to see the revolution as something, October as something unfinished, and I totally agree with that. So my question is, do you think, uh, is there anybody out there or, any, any social actor or group or whatever uh, writing those sentences or are those sentences being written and, uh, mm, mm. somewhere out there? The quote, just for context, is from Virginia Woolf. Um, she talks in Orlando, she talks about uh, Russia as a land where sentences are left unfinished and it's obviously a piece of kind of romantic essentialism but I was kind of taking it and applying it very specifically to this issue of the revolution um, that's what I mean that's the question isn't it that's the key question the honest truth is at the moment I am as I say I am very pessimistic I, I think in a way I think it's quite important to not be scared of pessimism this is something that I've been wrestling with for some time pessimism for one thing doesn't equal uh, surrender at all. Uh, you can go further. The great, now lost to us, uh, John Berger, has, when talking about Palestine, has a refe- repeated refrain about um, undefeated despair. You know, you cannot live in that situation without despair, but that does not mean you are defeated. You know, and I think that's extremely powerful for me. So I want to I make that clear, because if I sound like I've, like I've, like I'm pessimistic, that doesn't mean I'm saying, right, well, let's all just go home or surrender to, you know, uh, Per Ubu in the White House or whatever, you know, we, um, you know, very much the opposite. In fact, for me, it has been an energizing political thing to stop being afraid of looking unflinchingly the scale of how bad things are. And I have said before that I think that various species of that bad hope has been uh, a very baleful influence on the left throughout the 20th and 21st century. Um, come on, comrades, one more push. You know, um, so there are certainly glimmers. I mean, I, I, the, the Corbyn phenomenon in the UK, for all its constraints, for all its limitations, for all its uh, 
compromises has been absolutely remarkable, has been genuinely extraordinary. Uh, again, emerged from the void, uh, you know, no one would have predicted it. I think the bookies were giving him 5,000 to 1 at one point. Like, it really was... It's very difficult. To, I, I don't know if American friends and comrades understand. Like, this was not supposed to happen, you know. And that's been remarkable. So uh, this is a pessimism that is punctuated by joy, let me be clear. Um, and, um, and I see... And, and that's even, even, even if, as is pretty likely, you know, he is defeated. And I don't just mean in the election. I mean in general. If his, you know, he has already shifted the, the conversation and so on. So I do, you know, there are moments, there are glimmers. Do I, at the moment, see a kind of um, a systematic voice, a systematic movement? No. What I see is glimmers, I see moments, I see shouts. And then sometimes, you know, one, one of the reasons one has to stay girded all the time is because sometimes those shouts are either drowned out or convert themselves into, um, into sentences of the wrong kind. Most wrenchingly tragically in Greece the trajectory of Syriza which was uh, a brutal blow I think for all of us you know so um, so you know I, 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 re- I retain my joy and I retain my, my, my hope in the kind of long durée because I do see glimmers I, you know um, but I think for me it is important not to have a sense that history simply chugs along in the same way as it always has. I think for me, I'm 44 years old, this is the worst political time I have ever seen. And I think it's really important to look that unflinchingly in the eye and say, in the words of one of our fellow editors, there has never been in my lifetime a better time to be a fascist. And if you can say that, something is really frightening going on. So no, I... I, I, I think it is hopefully one of the things we can do is to, to keep hearing those glimmers of those voices and to, and to add our own voice to them. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.